Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to the analysis.news. In a few minutes, I'll be back with Dr. Sheer Hever. He grew up in Jerusalem. He now lives in Germany. And we're going to discuss the continuing Israeli assault on Gaza and the roots of this conflict. Be back in just a second. Sheer Hever is an economist and journalist. He's the coordinator of the military embargo campaign at the Palestinian BDS movement. Sheer grew up in Jerusalem, and he's now joining us from Heidelberg, Germany. Thanks very much for joining us, Sheer. Thanks for having me, Paul. So in this interview, uh, we're going to divide it into two parts. Uh, the first part is going to be about uh, the current situation and what could be done to uh, stop the, uh, the bloodshed and particularly the assault on the people of Gaza. Uh, and, and in part two, we're going to talk more about the political, economic roots of this conflict, uh, why the occupation uh, of Palestinian territory has gone on for decades, uh, why Hamas is in power uh, in Gaza, and uh, more about the uh, Israeli society and how it's responding to this conflict. Uh, but Sheer, uh, let, just tell me, uh, let, let the audience who hasn't seen you uh, for a while, because you, you haven't been on for a little while in the analysis, uh, just a little bit about your background, and then we'll get into what's going on. Right. Um, well, I, I don't want to get too, too deep into my background right now, but let's just say that um, as much as I enjoy speaking with you, I, I, I'm coming now on, on the show um, because it's it's burning uh, for me right now to to call for a ceasefire because people are are dying as we speak and um wh the, the way that it connects to my background is that people that i know have been killed uh, and and possibly taken hostage uh, and the thing is that um i don't know who they are because there is so much chaos that um it's it's often the case on the palestinian side in gaza where where the names of the dead take some time to be to be released, um, I know that uh, good friends of mine have lost family members, uh, but um, this time also on the Israeli side, I I, I lived for a year in uh, the town of Sderot. Sderot is very close to Gaza and was uh, one of the places that was attacked on October seventh, and I worked in in a school. And some of the pupils in that school, when they were in primary school, when I was teaching them, are today adults. And uh, just statistically speaking, it's clear that uh, their names are among the people who, who were killed. Uh, I mean, some, some of, of my pupils must be, must be on these lists, but the lists are not published. So even the Israelis are not able to, to list uh, uh, the victims yet. Uh, so this is really a very difficult time, and I think um, it, it's important that we have this conversation so people will know what's going on and uh, take action. The uh, position of the American government is about as uh, aggressively pro-Israel as one has seen in a long time. The vote in the UN Security Council, uh, where, in fact, even the Western countries that traditionally uh, vote in, in support of Israel um, did vote uh, to have a kind of ceasefire and allow humanitarian aid to get to Gaza. Uh, the, and the Americans vetoed this. Uh, and, it's, and the Americans are, seem to be trying to turn this into another uh, East versus West controversy. Even the Chinese were uh, 
I shouldn't say even the Chinese. Uh, the Chinese uh, on Ukraine have not said much. Uh, but on this, the Chinese were in support of uh, aid to, uh, to Gaza. Um, what do you make of the aggressive position of Biden while he was there? He paid a little bit of lip service to uh, innocent uh, Palestinians shouldn't be lumped in with Hamas, but that's exactly what's happening. Yeah, I I, I take some um, um, some some criticism on, on when you say that this is a pro-Israel position to veto the ceasefire, as if um, it it is in the in the interest of Israel that more bloodshed uh, will happen, uh, even though the the current um, atmosphere in the Israeli public is very much uh, bloodthirsty and calls for vengeance and and calls for genocide, the, um, that doesn't mean that it's in the interests of, of Israel. Uh, but uh, uh, yeah, the United States, um, especially Biden, made it very clear that their interest is to increase the bloodshed. And uh, the, the sending of two aircraft uh, carrier uh, groups to uh, the region or to very, very close to the Israeli coast in order to threaten uh, neighboring countries not to intervene is in fact giving uh, the Israeli government the the permission and the the umbrella to go on a ground offensive. So Biden said uh, that uh, the the ground invasion shouldn't happen while he's visiting, but his visit is not there forever, right? So he uh, left. Then uh, British Prime Minister uh, Sunak has taken his place, but he's not going to stay there forever either. And when Sunak leaves, then who's going to stop the Israelis from launching a ground invasion? Uh, which is, um, I mean, we're already at the stage where uh, the U UN published um, a warning, an, a genocide warning. Uh, and the OIC, the Organization of Islamic Countries, which represents 70, 57 states uh, around the world and more than 2 billion people, has said this is the beginning of genocide. Uh, so what's going to happen when, when ground troops enter Gaza? Uh, so... The, the real question is, why is the United States uh, pushing for so much bloodshed, so much bloodshed uh, is something that um, is not completely clear to me. I think I think there are other voices coming from the United States as well. One one explanation is the uh, military industry, the big arms companies like Lockheed Martin, Raytheon and Northrop Grumman, uh, their share pri prices increased by 30 uh, percent when when Israel launched its um, uh, offensive. So, um, yeah, it's, it is American weapons that are being showcased, that are being sold, but, but this is a very short-term perspective. I mean, the, there is no way that the Israeli offensive is going to be successful in a, in a strategic level. It's, it's only uh, shedding blood in the name of vengeance and, and killing innocent civilians. The thing is that uh, Biden has, uh, last year, made a, a, a call an executive decision to ban the use of Israeli spyware on U.S. citizens. Spyware, these uh, very dangerous uh, programs that are used to hack phones. Uh, and Israel is the only country in the world that allows private companies to sell spyware because it's a very dangerous tool for spreading disinformation. Uh, and Biden has nevertheless uh, himself been a victim of Israeli disinformation. So on the one hand, he's saying... Uh, we want to protect American citizens from disinformation spread through spyware. But uh, when the Israeli uh, institutions, the Israeli military started to um, 
spread fake news, uh, atrocity stories about uh, about the attack of October 7th, things that have been refuted so far. And I'm not going to repeat the details because they're gruesome and, and offensive, and I'm, I don't want to do this to the, to the listeners, to, to listen to those details. But Biden repeated those lies on his speech. He didn't recant it. He didn't apologize for that. And uh, then there was this uh, bombing of the hospital uh, in uh, the Ahali uh, Baptist Hospital in northern Gaza Strip. And once again, just before leaving, uh, Biden made another statement repeating the Israeli lies. And so either he's very, very stupid or I think or he knows that these are lies and, and he willingly spreads them because it gives the Israeli army a free hand to use more violence and to kill more civilians. Uh, I, I take your point about not lumping this all as Israel's interests. Uh, Israel's a class society, uh, as are every other country on earth. Um, and we've seen some splits uh, about what's going on in Israel and some interesting ones. Uh, former Prime Minister Omar came out and said the reason there is a Hamas that committed, and I, I'll say this in my own my own voice, I think terrorist attacks against Israeli civilians at the very beginning of all this, um, and you can, and as Hamas is the more or less the government of Gaza, you can call it a form of state terrorism, but it has to be seen within the context of decades of Israeli state terrorism against the people of Gaza, uh, and 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 and. We can get more into that maybe in part two. But Omar says that uh, Bibi Netanyahu and the far right of Israel have for decades deliberately nurtured Hamas, wanted Hamas uh, as the enemy uh, in order to avoid uh, any legitimate negotiations with the uh, Palestinian Authority and other forces in Palestine. PA isn't the only organization or force that could have been negotiated with if there was any serious intent to negotiate. Um, what, do you, what do you make of this? One, that, that Omar, and, and he's not the only one that came out and, and denounced this, this relationship of a, a morbid relationship between the Israeli far right and Hamas. Um, what do you make of that going public like that now? And, and what do you make of the substance of it? Yeah, let, let's let's put aside Olmert's own opportunism here, because uh, let's not forget that he commanded an invasion of the Gaza Strip in the winter of 2008-2009. Yeah, none, none of these guys are peaceniks. So. Yeah, yeah. And and at the time, he was criticized by Netanyahu, who said uh, that what is the point of invading Gaza and killing so many people if you're not going to destroy the Hamas uh, movement? Um, but then... People uh, have reminded Netanyahu that uh, he has not destroyed Hamas, and, and of course he cannot. That's not something that that can happen uh, any any more than the U.S. can destroy the Taliban, or uh, that that's uh, simply not uh, not not a physical possibility. But um, but of course the 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 very simple quote from Netanyahu, where he said openly uh, that anyone who wants to prevent a Palestinian state should support Hamas. Uh, as as a kind of divide and conquer strategy, um, th this is something every Israeli knows. I mean, you don't need to to go to Olmert for this. It's it's uh, common knowledge. That that's not the point. I think what you say about um, about the causes. Let's put aside um, the issue of moral judgments, because in the end, um, it, we, we can have this discussion and we can have our opinion on this, but but we cannot change the reality. And if somebody, if a Palestinian uses 
uh, violence, they they're not brought into uh, uh, trial, and uh, they're being they're killed, and and of course uh, for for each Palestinian who is killed in this way, there are ten Palestinians who are killed without resorting to violence at all, uh, so there is no no uh, idea of justice here, but the uh, uh, the same applies to Israelis where which which uh, you commit war crimes and crimes against humanity and. Uh, kill thousands of Palestinians, they're also not brought in front of a, a judge. They're also not uh, pressed, uh, charged with uh, a crime. So, they, But they're uh, simply allowed to get away with it. So this is not, I think, the time for moral judgment if, if um, which Palestinian faction is good or bad. The question is what can be done. And and of course you're correct about the issue of. Well, can I can uh, I just I just want to jump in on something you said. I think there is a way to root out Hamas, and I think there is a way to root out. There was a way to root out the Taliban, and that way is actually give a damn what happens to the people. I mean, I was in Afghanistan. I made a film there in 2002. If there had been any serious intent intent on the part of the U.S to actually rebuild schools, to actually rebuild people's life, to actually give people a living. There, there was a way to rebuild the Afghan economy by getting it off poppies and, and use the poppies for legitimate pharmaceutical needs. Uh, if, if Afghan society, if even a half or a quarter of what had been promised, the Taliban never would have come back because the people hated the Taliban on the whole. But no, the U.S. much preferred uh, to chase uh, the Taliban around, uh, to have a war go on for 20 years, and do next to nothing to rebuild Afghan society. And I, I, I would guess it's not that different. If, if there had actually been a life for people in Gaza, if it wasn't a, a desperate ghetto for decades, uh, and people had a way to have their own sovereignty, right, and, and, and livelihood, I don't know how much there would, or else it'd be a very different Hamas if there, if, if there was still a Hamas. So, I mean, this was solvable, obviously, if, if, any, if, if the Israeli elites wanted to solve it in a different way, but clearly they didn't. Yeah, I agree with you. And, and it is, in fact, a, a very important point that you make when you say the word ghetto, because you and I are Jews and we, we have some concept of what a ghetto is. And the, the slow starvation of a population in an open air prison where uh, they don't have access to enough water, enough food, enough medicine... Uh, is something that uh, is is akin to um, a very gradual death sentence to the civilian population, uh, and this is something that started before Hamas was even cre uh, created. So that's true. But also, what you say about uh, what way it is to defeat Hamas? I'm not a um, you know an advisor to the Israeli military or to the Israeli government. I'm not going to tell them what to do, and, and I'm not going to uh, advise them in any way. Uh, but um, but I do see what Palestinian public opinions say about public support for the Hamas uh, uh, movement, which is about 20 percent, 30 percent of the population uh, uh, express support. And what I hear from uh, all of my Palestinian friends is uh, what what would actually eliminate uh, uh, Hamas completely is not you know, uh, material goods, as you say, uh, but but freedom. Just basic equality and and human rights, and that is much more important. Uh, so they say, you know, if there's gonna be uh, just just a voting right and one one person one vote in a democratic uh, situation, uh, then then the Hamas will get zero votes <laughs> because because nobody would would support them under these conditions. 
So yeah, uh, in that sense, I, I completely agree with you. I don't think the Israelis are capable of of even contemplating that kind of approach right now. But what makes them so strong in their aggression and in their blindness, in their uh, willingness to to just intensify the violence uh, indiscriminately, is the United States, and not just the United States, other Western countries as well. Uh, we, uh, Germany, absolutely. Uh, which which are willing to basically send bombs. Germany is sending naval bombs to Israel. The Britain is sending uh, warships and and other ammunitions. The United States is is sending more than everybody else combined, uh, with the clear understanding this, these are weapons are going which are going to be used to kill civilians, uh, and uh, the Israelis understand it as well. Within the Israeli discourse right now, every uh, gesture of support. When when um, uh, the German Minister of Foreign Affairs said we are all Israelis now, or when Biden held his speech, uh, then they say, okay, this means international law doesn't apply to us. This is how they they uh, interpret it, and they, they're saying it. You know, I'm I'm listening to to the news reports and in Hebrew, and they are saying it with these words exactly. I mean, as far as the American situation goes, you the. You, Whenever you analyze U.S. foreign policy, you have to begin with American domestic politics, uh, and and it's not a, it's not just about the military-industrial complex. I mean, of course, it's always about the military-industrial complex, but they're doing quite all quite well right now with Ukraine. I don't know that they they needed an assault on Gaza uh, to 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 get what they want out of American foreign policy. Um, no, I I think the the, the the main thing driving this is just Biden is absolutely number one priority. Don't look weak. Don't look weak on China. Uh, don't look weak on Russia. Don't look weak in relationship to Israel. And of course, the, the uh, there's a there's a factor that doesn't get talked about enough, and we don't need to get into it much now. But but just to say it, uh, the the forces of uh, white Christian nationalism in the United States are very strong. And it's it's what's giving Trump his momentum, and and they're very scared of these forces. Um, they being the Democratic Party and the elites associated with them uh, are legitimately and rightly they should be afraid. Although they help give birth to these forces with with their economic uh, policies towards uh, you know the, uh, you know at least the seventy five million people that voted for Trump. But one of the concepts, as you know, of white Christian nationalism is the role of Israel and support for Israel, because Israel, Israel has a role to play in the final uh, apocalypse and so on. It's an important part of the narrative. It's a very bloody and role. of course, bloody. I don't know. He, it's a he, crazy, he, unholy he, alliance. Of enlightenment for the Christian evangelical... Uh, for, yeah, I mean, it's not... Speak for, why, why the Israelis play ball with this and the Jew, the right-wing Jews... Is, is is amazing because they're all going to hell when this happens. It's not like all of a sudden these Jews are going to be accepted uh, next to the lap of God. But whatever, none of this has to make sense. But let's set the U.S. politics aside for for now. Um, let me just ask: Are there are there forces within Israel um, that are being understandably given the the Hamas attack on civilians, and especially the way Israeli media has been pounding a bloodthirsty response. Uh, but are there forces calling for uh, a ceasefire? And, and, and don't the Israelis get to see that even in the U.S., uh, 
the media is starting to get sympathetic to the situation of the Palestinians. And if you watch American mainstream media right now, um, you would want you would actually conclude there should be a, a, a ceasefire, at least for humanitarian aid. Um, it's been an interesting switch in the U.S. media. Yeah. Well, uh, there are absolutely these voices within Israeli society. First of all, there, were, there are the 199 uh, families of the people who uh, have been taken hostage. We don't know exactly how many hostages are there and how many are still alive after the Israeli bombing. Uh, but uh, because, because very likely Israel is killing the, the, the Israeli hostages with indiscriminate bombing of Palestinian homes. Uh, but uh, there are 199 families and some of these families have more than one person who was uh, taken captive. So we don't know how many, but these families, most of them are saying with a very clear voice that there must be a ceasefire and they want a prisoner exchange. And there are a lot of Israelis who support the idea of a, of a ceasefire, humanitarian corridor, a, 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 a prisoner exchange. Israel is holding about 6,000 Palestinian political prisoners. A hundreds, sorry, over a thousand of them are held without a trial. So there is actually no no charges pressed against them. There's nothing, there's no reason that Israel shouldn't just release these people. Uh, they should have released them anyway. And this is now uh, a good time uh, to, to get the hostages back. So uh, these voices are certainly strong. And, and the voices are the strongest coming from the survivors of the kibbutzim and the towns close to Gaza who have really suffered the most and lost family members and there are heartbreaking videos and statements by these people, not just the ones who say, please bring the hostages home, but also because they're, they're family members, but also those who, who um, don't have uh, family members who are hostages and say, but look, the, this attack on our home, on our family, uh, it was completely the responsibility of the Israeli government. What else were they expecting that would happen if Palestinians are held in ghetto-like conditions? And uh, if there is now continual continual violence and, and indiscriminate killing of Palestinians in, in Gaza, just a couple of kilometers away from us. What a reason do we have now to think that this will be over, that it's not going to happen again and again? Uh, we'll never have safety as long as this happens. So these are the voices we, that also exist in Israel. But uh, there is a problem with the Israeli media, which I've never seen before. A level of silencing, a level of McCarthyism, that uh, is unprecedented in the Israeli society, even though, of course, it has never been a democratic and free press. There was military censorship, but now um, the, the Minister of uh, Communication used um, emer an emergency order, uh, according to the state of emergency that exists in Israel, that allows the government to seize the equipment and to arrest journalists if they express opinions that the government does not approve of. And uh, people are being arrested, uh, mostly Palestinian journalists are being, uh, with Israeli citizenship, I mean, Israeli citizens, but not Jewish citizens, uh, are being arrested already. And because of this, uh, what you described, this shift in the U.S. Uh, public discourse and in the, in the media discourse in the United States, is just not reported in Israel. Israelis who don't read English and are not able to, to look at the international media don't know that this has happened. They still... Let, uh, uh, read the Hebrew translation of Biden's uh, speech, and that's what they believe is still the case uh, in terms of the public opinion in the United States. The uh, Egypt has announced that they're going to have some trucks with some aid 
get to Gaza. Um, but the Arab countries on the whole, uh, some rhetoric in support of the Palestinians, uh, but not much concrete pressure, it doesn't seem. Yes, the Saudi-Israeli detente seems to will be on the back burner for a little while, but everybody expects it sooner than later to get back on board again. Um, but what's happening amongst the people, uh, especially in, in, in the neighboring countries, in, in Egypt, in Jordan? Sir Jordan has a ma massive Palestinian population. Uh, to what extent are, are people in this in or going to be in the streets? Are, are these governments feeling some pressure from their own people? Um. I'm not the best guest for you to pose this question to. You should you should find a guest who's an expert on these Arab countries and who can read the newspapers in Arabic and so on. I, I, what I read is is absolutely yes. Uh, there there was a, a several there, there were several mass demonstrations in Jordan that the German police is uh, crushing with violence because people feel a strong solidarity with Palestine, uh, and um, Egypt uh, is is also in a, in a very difficult dilemma in a way because there's pressure on them and the U.S. has offered a large bribe if they would allow and absorb Palestinian refugees from Gaza into the Sinai Peninsula. But uh, everybody knows that if this happens, these refugees will never be allowed to return. It's going to be a second Nakba. Palestinians will be expelled from their homes. Once again, some of these people are, are already refugees, uh, most of them actually. So uh, from from uh, inside Israel, from uh, 48. So now they're going to become refugees again. So on the one hand, Egypt um, says, okay, we're not going to open the, the border, not going to allow these people through. But then again, uh, this, this could mean uh, that these people are going to be killed. And you mentioned the, the humanitarian assistance, which is very desperately and urgently needed. But... The Gaza Strip has been split by the Israeli forces into two parts. The northern part, the Israelis said, everyone has 40, uh, 24 hours to evacuate or they will all be killed. So that part of the... Uh, but but uh, everyone trying to get to the south, there were several convoys of people taking their families and trying to escape to the southern part of the Gaza Strip. Those convoys were bombed by the Israeli Air Force. So people don't know what to do. And in these conditions, how can you send trucks of aid to the northern part? They could be bombed along the way. Uh, so uh, the, the, it's not enough that Egypt will allow the uh, aid to go into Gaza. There also has to be pressure on the Israeli government to allow the trucks to actually get to the people who need the food and medicine and water very urgently. Uh, to get back to how this unfolded... Um, there's been reports that Hamas never expected to meet so little Israeli resistance uh, in terms of the Israeli military. Uh, they never expected to be able to actually take over kibbutz and be in a situation that it sounds like if, you know, I, I, I don't know if you know, but it sounds like they lost control of some of their own fighters to some extent. And some of the bloody stuff that happened wasn't, you know, planned. Uh, that 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 the objective was to to kidnap people, if you want to use that term, and use them as hostages as part of a prisoner exchange. Um, and then the whole thing uh, spiraled into something far bigger. Um, I know there's you know there's theories about uh, did the did it, did it to some extent Netanyahu or 
part of the far right in the military because like like society, all countries' militaries reflect the fractions and factions within the society. It's the same thing in the U.S. You've got a far right faction in the U.S. military and then you have a, another one that's more centrist. Um, uh, you know, it, certainly it seems in the short term at any rate what has happened benefits the far right, whether it's Netanyahu personally or not, uh, the far right seems to benefit in the Israel. They, they're going to have a kind of stronger, at least for a time, even if they get condemned for what happened, a far more overt theocratic dictatorship emerges out of this with a more united anti-Palestinian uh, Israeli society, and it already was pretty racist to begin with. Uh, so, so what do you, what do you make of this? Yeah, the first part uh, of of your question referred to uh, the Hamas fighters maybe un uh, underestimating, overestimating the resistance on the Israeli side and not expecting it to be so easy. But I think uh, we have to be a little bit careful because I've heard these sort of arguments from Israeli generals for many many years, where they again and again underestimate Palestinians and uh, underestimate their intelligence and think, okay, these the, the Palestinians don't know what we're capable of. They don't know how to organize a, an effective strategy. Uh, and again and again, the Israeli generals are proven wrong because Palestinians are, are human beings just as intelligent as Israelis and capable of, of understanding. And if anything, in this colonial relationship between a very arrogant uh, and, and powerful colonial state and uh, the indigenous population, the indigenous Palestinian population, Palestinians have a much deeper understanding of Israeli society than Israelis have of Palestinian society. And there are a lot of Palestinians who speak Hebrew much more than Israelis who speak Arabic. So because of this, uh, the I, I, I'm very careful about saying, oh, uh, Hamas didn't know exactly what, what they're going to find on the other side. But you, but you can't. But listen, attacking a concert of kids, a music concert and slaughtering kids is, does not seem part of a very smart, coherent strategy to me. Um, I, it, it could have been their intention, but I, I don't know. But uh, and, and, and we're not talking about uh, kids exactly, young adults. But uh, yeah, it was uh, well, either way concert. Yeah. Yeah, but the thing is, one of the things that Israelis were surprised, how did Hamas fighters even know about this concert? How did they know about this party? Well, because they can read the online invitations and the advertisement uh, just like anybody else. And that's something that uh, Israelis didn't even, it, it didn't even occur to them. Uh, but what you said about the far right in Israel, and the far right in Israel is, is now part of the government uh, in an unprecedented way. Uh, Smotrich, the minister of finance, and the, the chairman of the party, Religious Zionism, called himself, he referred to himself as a um, fascist homophobe. So this is something that uh, we've never seen before uh, so much in the mainstream. Uh, there, there have always been far-right parties in, in Israel and, and far-right movements, but they've never been allowed into such key positions, into becoming the minister of finance. But what you said about them becoming stronger that actually didn't happen. And that's very interesting, that when those far-right politicians were confronted with a, an indigenous population which is capable of uprising and using uh, force, they, they panicked themselves. They, their concept is that Palestinians can be just swept out of the way with overwhelming Israeli force 
and they assume that the, the power relations are so overwhelmingly on the side of Israel that it's going to be very easy. And, and now they realize it's not going to be very easy. And the public is responding in a very similar way. One of those ministers has, has made the mistake of going to one of the kibbutzim and trying to speak to the survivors um, and um, show support and solidarity with them. They shouted him out. And it's very interesting what he was trying to say to them. He said, look, the state needs to be um, to provide you with, with uh, support and relief and protection. And they told him, you are the state and you failed in doing all of that. And you can come to us and, and try to protest what the government is doing when you are a, a government minister uh, is, is just uh, un, untrustworthy and unbelievable. So we're going to do a part two, as I said. Uh, to conclude part one, uh, for people watching this, uh, what, what sh who are, I, I am sure most were outraged to see the attacks on Israeli civilians and are now, I would think, even more outraged at the collective punishment that's happening against Ga the people of Gaza. Uh, what should they say? What should they do? We have to stop uh, genocide. We have to, there is a very clear recipe for genocide that we see. First, there's dehumanization of the Palestinian side. Uh, there is outright racism, a fervor of nationalism, overwhelming military power, a, a feeling that there is a free hand and there are not, not going to be any consequences. And then the, the killing starts, uh, the blood is spilled. And, and of course, disinformation is part of it. And, and blaming the victim and saying, oh, Palestinians have brought this upon themselves. These are the components of genocide. This is already happening. So what we need to do is to stop it in whatever form we can. If, if it's through our uh, unions or churches or synagogues, or um, if, if we have access to political actors, uh, if we have connections with political ac uh, actors, uh, but also through economic pressure by... Uh, just, just showing that uh, the eyes of the world are watching and Israelis are not going to be, get, uh, to be allowed to get away with committing genocide against Palestinians. Okay, thanks, Shir. So in part two, uh, we're going to talk more about why does the occupation continue decade after decade. Um, th there was another way for this to happen. I, I mentioned this to Shir off camera just before, you know, there could have been a kind of more quote unquote normal capitalist development here, more South Africa style, uh, where the Palestinians were incorporated into uh, a, whether the state would have been called Israel or even a two state solution, but one way or the other, a solution that reinforces capitalist relationships allows a certain amount of the Palestinians into the elites, as has, as, as has happened in South Africa. Some blacks have now entered uh, the South African elites and, and help rule on behalf of the tiny minority that actually owns stuff. Um, there could have been that kind of development in Israel, but clearly there's forces in Israel that, that don't want, didn't want that. Um, one of the questions I will be asking Shir, not now, but just to tease it. Um, when I was in Israel 30 years ago, I, was, I went to a film festival and I went because I was told a dozen Palestinian filmmakers were going. So I figured if they're going, I'll go. They actually pulled out 
couple of days before I got there. But what I heard at that point, and I'm guessing is still true, that if it wasn't with a, a quote-unquote existential threat of Palestinians to Israel, and I, I put quote-unquote because I don't think there ever was or is an existential threat to Israel uh, from the Palestinians, but without that as a threat, Israeli society itself would explode uh, with the secular versus uh, religious uh, sections at war at just who and what kind of society Israel is going to be. So we're going to talk about that in part two. Um, and for now, thank you, Shir. Thank you, Paul. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news. Please don't forget, uh, without your donations, we don't get to do this. So go over to our webpage at the analysis.news and click donate and get on the email list. And thanks again.